there, there might be pies flying, and, and that could just be a lot of fun. So hey, grab your Bible. Psalms 4 is where we are going to spend time this morning uh, as we begin just working our way through some selected psalms out of the first quote-unquote book of the psalms. The, the 150 psalms that we have are broken down into five different books. Uh, psalms 1 through, I believe, 42 comprise book 1. And we're just taking selected psalms from book one there. So before we go any farther, let's, let's just go before the Lord and, and spend some time asking Him to, to meet with us in a special way here this morning. Father God, we, we are grateful for Your Word. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning to, to, to celebrate Christ as our cornerstone, to Celebrate that in the, that in the midst of, of storms, there's, there's a rock that we can cling on to. Lord, to be able to celebrate two young ladies who memorized verses and, and to just appreciate and celebrate their hard work. And God, we're grateful for the opportunity to come together and draw near to you in your word. We thank you for speaking. We thank you for revealing for us what it is that you want us to know. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do draw near, that you would help us to understand, that you would give us ears to hear, that as our minds think of what David wrote and think of how that applies that you would help us to understand what it means, how it applies, and, and what it is that you want us to learn from this psalm. God, you're good. You're good in, in more ways than I think we can count. You're certainly good in more ways or in every way than we deserve. And we thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have to, to draw near. And so we ask and, and pray that you would come meet with us in a special way. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, Psalm 4, as we begin to get into it, I just want to point out a few things for you in regards to um, Psalm 4. The first is in regards to the introduction that is given um, at the very beginning. So if you look at Psalm 4, there's probably a, a bolded summary statement right by the big number that may say something to the effect of, answer me when I call. And that, that chapter number, along with that bolded text was, was added later, and so there's nothing inspired about those. That wasn't a part of the original, uh, but what you then have as a part of the original psalm, as David would have written it, would be the introduction, which is probably in a, a all-caps font just below that bolded text. Are you tracking with me? And it's going to say something to the effect of, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And so as the Psalms were songs, they were intended, they were written as songs, they were intended to be sung. This psalm was written and intended to be sung by the choir 
and it was intended to be sung by the choir with guitars backing them up, or a harp, or a lyre, or whatever other stringed instruments they would have had. But David has a very specific context and use that this psalm was to take place in. And he has a very specific set of instruments that he thinks that he wants to have accompanying. Psalm 5 was actually written for the flutes. And so not every psalm was written for the stringed instruments. You, you see some of just the variety and I think musical genius that David was in the fact that he was able to, to write music for different instruments and parts and consider who was to sing what and, and where and how. And, and we don't have the sheet music recording any of that, but we know that these psalms were written as psalms or songs. They probably composed the the Jewish Old Covenant hymnal, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. And this one in particular was to be sung by the choir, and there was to be stringed instruments playing in accompaniment of this. And so it's just fascinating if we begin to just understand how this might have been sung in the tabernacle, and how many voices might have been lifted up in, in, in unison and harmony and melody as they were singing these very words that David wrote. But, but Psalm 4 begins to address a very significant issue for David, for the people of Israel. But it also ends up addressing a very significant issue for us. And it begins to ask and answer and address the question of what do we do when we see sin? What do we do when we see sin? Now, we're not told what kind of sin he saw. We actually have very little information about the historical context of what is happening in this psalm. And that can be, that can be a drawback because we're not able to understand everything that's happening. If you would actually look at the introduction of Psalm 3, you see that one is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. His son. We can take that introduction, we can go back in the Old Testament history books and see what was happening when David was fleeing Absalom. And we can take the words of Psalm 3 and we can go, okay, Absalom was trying to un unseat him in the throne, Absalom's his son, there is, there is just a hot mess in the family of David right now, and we can understand some things historically about what's taking place. We don't have that type of introduction here in Psalm 4. What we can see is Psalm 4 breaking down into four stanzas or four verses, if you will. Now, we're going to look at all four. We're not just going to sing one, two, and, one, two, and four. Uh, so we're not going to leave three out. But we have in the beginning of the song that David writes a plea to God. In verses 2 and 3, he begins to then give a warning to those who are sinning. Verses 4 and 5, instructions to the godly who are observing all of this and struggling. And verses 6 to 8, with a petition to God in a conclusion. What we do know in regards to the situation historically in, re, in, in this psalm, we can derive from the very words of this psalm. In verse 2, we can read and understand and see that somehow David was being shamed. He says, how long will my honor be turned to shame? In the second part of verse 2, we can see that the ungodly were loving vain words and seeking after lies. That there was something they were pursuing that was not being informed by truth. And really there was an implication there that they may have had full knowledge of that and just ch chose to pursue vain words and 
lies. The godly were angry. And they were actually beginning to despair because of what they were seeing. The ungodly were finding great joy from their actions, which potentially were leading to some sort of financial gain. And that's, I think, implied by verse 7. By the end of the psalm, we do not see that the troubling circumstances were resolved. They actually weren't. The conclusion that David derives at the end of Psalm 8 is not on the basis or because all of the troubling circumstances have completely been cared for and dealt with. The conclusion that David arrives to, which really is the broad major summary point of this entire psalm, is that we trust in God who sovereignly reigns. And that's what we see David throughout the psalm instructing those to do, and that is the conclusion that he arrives to at the end. We trust in God who sovereignly reigns. But let's just think about this for a minute, because I think there's some comparable situations. If we just take that situation that we have from the psalm, we can, we can see there's some comparable circumstances, because this is a very broad, very broad, very non-specific situation but some of the comparison situations that we may find ourselves seeing and wondering, what do I do when I see that, is potentially what's happening on the world stage in regards to ISIS. What do we do when we see on the news, when we read in the newspaper, when we perhaps see on our Facebook feed what ISIS has done next? Last week, they, I believe it was burned alive, 19 girls who refused to be sex slaves in the midst of hundreds of onlookers. It was a few weeks before that that they began drowning people in baths of nitric acid and just burning them alive with chemicals. Certainly we've seen the pictures and maybe even the videos of the beheadings and the crucifixions. And well, What do we do when we see that? Because there's something in our souls that is, not, that is not okay with that. And we certainly know that those actions and even the beliefs that they have would not be in conformity to God's word. And so what do we do when we see that? I think Psalm 4 is going to have some things that are instructive for us. If we went from the world stage, well perhaps we just stay at the world stage for a minute. What do we do when we are confronted with the reality of human trafficking? Currently, the number one, this is according to the United Nations and the statistics about three years old, the number one most profitable form of crime, yielding $32 billion a year in income, is drug trafficking. $500 million behind it, taking the number two spot, is human trafficking. And estimations are actually that human trafficking will take over drug trafficking as the most profitable form of crime. What do we do when we're confronted with the reality of modern day slavery? And it doesn't just happen on a world stage, it happens on a national stage. It even has happened on our own local stage. And you could go and talk to Michelle Crawford who's engaged these things in a, in a tremendous way and, and find out even more detailed statistics about Franklin County. And what happens in our own backyard in regards to people being sex slaves and being traded around and trafficked in our own county. What do we do with that? 
What do we do when we're actually confronted with the reality of abortion? How about racism and discrimination? What do we do when we see these things, when we're confronted with these things? How about just injustice? We can see injustice all over the place. At times, we even see injustice in our own legal system. And, and right now, our nation is, is I'm not going to say up in arms, I'm not sure anybody has bared arms yet, but they're all in a bit of a frenzy, and perhaps rightfully so, because of the ruling and the sentencing that this Stanford college student received after being convicted of three accounts of aggravated sexual assault. What do we do when we're confronted with injustice? How do we respond? How do we engage on a national stage in those regards? But what about locally? What about, what about at your job? What about in your neighborhood? What, what about the, 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 the office dynamics of, of backbiting and lying and cheating and, and anybody that's just willing to do whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder? And so they'll say whatever they need to say about you or about somebody else so they can get a leg up but you might find yourself not willing to compromise your integrity in that regard, but you find yourself left wondering, what, what, what recourse do I have? What do I do? I think Psalm 4 is going to give us some answers to those questions. It doesn't necessarily give us specific answers of how we're to go engage in an actionable way so Psalm 4 is not going to tell us, well, hey, go engage the legal system or go talk to HR or, or go write a letter to your senator. And there's no, there's no specific instruction in regards to that. There is a time and place for all of those things. And, and all of those things are spoken to and, and guided by, by God in wisdom and direction from other places. But what Psalm 4 primarily deals with is, is really what, what our minds conclude in regards to the, the scope of what is happening. And the big idea of Psalm 4, again, is that we trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And we see David even saying as much to those who were sinning. We trust in a God who sovereignly Reigns. Well, let's look together at verse 1 and David's opening plea to God. David writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Notice, first of all, that as David comes and pleads, to God, He begins his petition to God that he, he asks God to answer as he's drawing near and calling. But he asks God to answer based on the character of God's righteousness. Not on the character of who David is. Oh God of my righteousness. He's, he's coming before God based on who God is. He continues, you have given me relief. Some of your translations may say, give me relief, but it's actually better if it's past tense. It's a little bit more accurate. And there's a, there's a, a plea there that, that you have given me relief when I was in distress. And you see David recalling and recounting the times that God has given relief already. That word distress means to be pent up. It's the idea of, of being confined and restricted. And the word relief 
is a word that pictures wide open spaces. So you can just imagine the imagery that David is using as he's coming before the Lord and he's thinking back and recounting to what God has done past in his life. The past grace that David has received from the Lord and comes before the Lord, not reminding the Lord of these things, but probably reminding himself of these things and God's work in his life and his past grace that he has received. I don't know if some of you have it. Carrie and I just last week began uh, discussing uh, how we want to do it, and we've, we've been in encouraged to do this for years and we just never have but uh, some of you may have a a jar or something that has a a a collection of prayer requests that you have seen answered by the Lord and and maybe for some of you it's rocks I mean the, the ideas are plentiful of what that could be but as we find ourselves thinking about just all of the different ways the Lord's provided for our adoption and all the ways that He's provided in the past, I, I don't want to forget those things. And, and we're at a point where, where it, it seems like it's just that much more important that we have something that we can even get out and read to our kids so that that memory is not just something we're recalling. It's, it's, it's accessible for them and we can sit them down and say, let, let us tell you how God provided this or let's just randomly pull one out and recall the story of God's provision in the past. And I think in many ways that's what David has in mind here. He has in mind times that God had given him relief when he was in distress. He's recalling God's past grace and then at the tail end of verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, hear my prayer. There's an honesty here that David is drawing before the Lord with, and you can see already he is expressing trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And he's recalling back to how God has already provided relief in distressing situations. And is saying, oh Lord, I need you here and now again. We trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. In verses 2 and 3, David is now going to begin to give a warning to those who are sinning. And there's not an explicit instruction here for us, but I think, we can, I think we can take and glean some instruction from it that, that, that David's address to those warning and his warning to those that were sinning was, was more of an inquiry than it was even a specific confrontation or condemnation of their actions. He says in verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's hard for us to know exactly what group of men David is referencing. That word, O men, can mean men of rank, it can be men of stature, and we can look at the second part of verse 2 there and see that those that he is addressing are those who are loving vain words, and they are seeking after lies. But the question David comes to them with is, to what end are you going to pursue these things? And it's a tremendous question to ask. To what end are you pursuing these things? What's the goal When does this end? Think of some of the things that even our culture is finding themselves confronting and the the, the vain words and the lies that we see being being wide-scale propagated and even celebrated. And you just find yourself wondering, to what end will this be taken? 
And there's something significant about what God's word allows believers to do. We have the ability from God's word to have a, a, a pretty clear picture and vision of what the end of sin is going to lead. We know in an ultimate sense it leads to death. But here and now there, there are certainly, certainly consequences of sin that will be reaped. And that question of to what end are you going to take this? What is the goal that you are pursuing can be a tremendous, tremendous question to raise and to ask. David continues in verse 3, But know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call. Again, in this, these verses we see David's instruction that we trust in a God who sovereignly reigns by what he says in verse 3. But know the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Those words, set apart, they are written in such a way by David that he is saying that God himself has taken action on a group of people. And he has done something. So here in that verse, the Lord took action on the godly and set them apart. That's the way, the most literal translation of what David wrote there. And he is using that reality as a warning to those who are sinning. Your end is not determinable by your actions. Because God has done something. God has set the godly apart for himself. You may be trying to overthrow them. You may be seeking to kill and destroy them. But you will not win. You will not achieve that goal because the Lord has done something. You see David expressing trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And he says to them, the Lord hears when I call. He's not distant. He is there and he is listening In the third verse, the third stanza, we have David giving instructions to the godly. And I think this is probably where you and I will find some of the most poignant instruction for us. And David begins in verse 4 and says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your own bed and be silent. Here we see that David recognizes that the the observation of sin can rightly lead to anger. We can observe what ISIS does and rightly feel anger. We can be confronted with abortion statistics and human trafficking statistics and, and rightly feel anger at, at what we are observing and what is taking place. We can, we can watch a video just this past week or hear or read the reports just this past week of a 13-year-old girl almost being abducted from a Dollar General store. And if her mother had not thrown her own body on her girl, she probably would have been dragged out of the store. You can watch that and feel a, a sense of, of righteous anger to that. And I saw that video and I read the report and I, I kid you not, like my veins just began surging with adrenaline as I placed myself in that scenario of what would happen if a guy walked around the aisle at the grocery store and just started dragging one of my kids away by their arms. 
you watch that. You read about what ISIS is doing. You, you're confronted with abortion statistics and the reality of that, that evil that that is. You're, you're confronted with human trafficking, not just on a world stage where it can feel like it's set apart, but here even locally, and you find yourself, I think, rightly angered by what we observe and see. The image of God is not being honored. Men and women are not being treated with equality. There is is all sorts of injustice in our world. But here, David, I think, gives freedom to feel real feelings. To feel anger. But notice quickly that he says, do not sin. So as he gives instructions to the godly that that are observing what is happening in their own nation... The the right response, yes, indeed, can be anger, but in so, do not sin. I think think the big idea there is that it's not up to us to avenge. It's not up to us to avenge. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. We're given a little bit more instruction in regards to that big idea in the book of Romans Chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Words that are very, very reminiscent of Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. And words that I believe are also very reminiscent of what David has to say here in verse 4. Be angry. And do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own bed, and be silent. And he continues to give instructions to the godly and says, offer right sacrifices. I think we could rightly summarize that command by saying, continue to worship. And here again, we have to reference that and just understand that worship is not an event that you come and participate in. Please do not see that part of verse 4 and think, okay, I got to, or excuse me, verse 5, I got to keep going to church on Sunday mornings. And that certainly is a part of worship. And what we have gathered here to do this morning is indeed collectively worship the Lord. But what, what David has in mind here is not just the collection and the activity of a group of individuals at one specific point in time, but rather a lifestyle lived. And so the idea and the instruction to offer right sacrifices is a command and an instruction to continue to obey what the Lord has commanded you to do in His Word. And so for us as believers in the New Covenant, that can fast forward for us to to what Jesus said at the very last week of His life when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So for us to offer right sacrifices, I believe, should be understood as continually worship. 
continually come before the Lord and draw before the Lord and worship and come before Him and seek to love God with everything that we have and seek to love our neighbors with everything that we have. And this is a lifestyle. This is not an event. And you see, continually David is saying, we trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And he will say as much in the second half of verse 5. Put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. The instructions to the godly are to be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And I understand at this point all of the questions that may come up are not easily answered. Because I wonder, God, where and how are you sovereignly reigning as 19 girls lost their lives last week for standing up for something that was just the gross injustice and downright evil. God, where are you in that? And, and, and the psalm begs those questions of where God is as well. And it's incredibly instructive for us that at the very end of the psalm, as David begins to draw conclusions and goes back before the Lord on behalf of the people, the circumstances are not resolved. Long before David's circumstances are changed, David's prayer before the Lord had changed him. And he tells the godly to put their trust in the Lord. He tells them, we trust in a God who sovereignly reigns, even in the midst of what we can see is evil, even when we don't understand what is going on, we trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And in verse 6, he goes back before the Lord. He says, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? I think the question David is taking before the Lord and what he is asking of the Lord or, or, or saying to the Lord is that there's a significant number of people who are wondering, God, where are you at? Where's the good? Because all we see, all we observe seems to be evil, seems to be not good, seems to be informed by vain words and the pursuit after lies. God, where are you? And David then requests of the Lord, in the very next phrase, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In the Old Testament, when God's face is spoken of, it's in regards and in indication of his presence. David is asking the Lord to show up. God, reveal yourself in this situation. God, come and do what only you can do. We're wondering how long, we're wondering where, we're wondering where is the good in the midst of evil. God, we, we want you to come. But he draws some tremendous conclusions in verses 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Just consider that for a moment. Consider the word picture that David is giving and saying to the Lord and what he is indicating about the Lord's work in his own heart. 
The idea of grain and wine abounding is the idea of a bountiful, plentiful harvest. If you're a farmer and your harvest comes in and it is a bounding harvest, you're, you're full of joy for that. The crop yielded and it yielded in ways that I hadn't anticipated and, and, and we're going to be able to, to meet all of those financial needs we have and, and there's joy at the abounding and the, 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 the producing and the flourishing of the, of the grain that you've got planted and the, the grapes that you're able to make wine with and yet David says that the joy the Lord has given him is greater than the joy they have in even financial prosperity. That the joy that they're deriving from having a bountiful harvest, from having the, the checkbook have a little bit more money in it, from seeming to have a, a, a worldly or a financial victory, pales into comparison with the joy that David has from the Lord. And notice how the joy got there. You have put more joy in my heart. This wasn't David bucking up and trying to find joy. This was God sovereignly placing joy in David's heart. And David continues in conclusion, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The conclusion that David arrives at the end of this psalm is not based on his circumstances changing. It's based on the activity of God. It's based on the activity of God putting more joy in the heart of David. It's based on the activity of God making him dwell in safety. And as a result, David says, I will lie down and sleep. We trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. That's the big idea of Psalm 4. It's the big idea of what David is writing and what the Lord inspired David to write. Let me read you this one statement by a scholar that I think is, is helpful. Life should be lived with the assurance of God's sovereignty knowing that He rules over everything for His glory, even when it seems as if the godly have dominated the scene, believers should remember that God has chosen the godly for Himself and will not forsake them. This is the central message of Psalm 4, a song that provides Godward focus in the midst of life's storms. We trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. In all of these words, and, and even the summary, and I think the big idea can also be helpfully summarized by what David's son Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. I think it's incredibly important for us to realize that at the end of this psalm, David's circumstances had not changed. 
but his confidence in God had been renewed and his ability to trust God even in the midst of what appeared to be very, very dark days had been reaffirmed. And he says, I'm going to lie down and I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to rest because God is in control even though I don't see it right now. We trust in a God who sovereignly reigns. And we do so by faith. And we do so by His grace. And we do so by drawing near in our time of need that we may receive the grace and mercy we need from Him. There's There's some realness to this psalm. There's real distress. And yet David finds himself coming back to trusting in God who sovereignly reigns. Let's pray. God, we recognize, and maybe it's just me that recognizes, that that's that's not always easy. That, that trusting in you in the middle of, of life's storms and, and trusting in, in, in what it is that you're doing and that you haven't taken a nap and you haven't, you haven't somehow clocked out for 24 hours to come back surprised at what was all taking place that you, you, you know and you're sovereignly reigning. God, that can be tough. I thank you for psalms like this that are able to be that honest, that, that, there's, that there's distress. That we can look out and we can see evil seemingly winning. We can wonder where the good is and, and, and we can certainly come before you and plead that you come and show up and you, you move in such a way that, that, that girls no longer are being trafficked down I-81 and, and, and run through our community and our, and our county as sex slaves and babies would no longer lose their lives and, and God we find ourselves in the midst of that wondering where are you? I thank you for honest psalms like this where, where, where godly men have, have gone before and wondered those very same things and, and, and take us back to the truth of your word that you haven't left the throne. that You are sovereignly reigning. So God, we need your grace and your mercy to put our trust in you. God, we pray that you'd work in us in a tremendous way and help us do that. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please?